This summer, we're so thrilled to be offering a series of four midweek lectures. The lecture you are about to hear is from Dr. Chris Green. Dr. Green is releasing a book in 2024 entitled The Fire and the Cloud, A Biblical Christology. And we're grateful through this lecture to have been the first people to hear him publicly lecture on this work. Dr. Green is the author of several books, including All Things Beautiful and Aesthetic Christology, Being Transfigured, Surprised by God, and several others. There's a link to his website and Stubstack page in the show notes. Dr. Green is Professor of Public Theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida, and the Director for St. Anthony Institute of Theology, Philosophy, and Liturgics. This lecture was recorded on July 26, 2023. You don't want to miss our final two lectures. On August 9th, Dr. Cheryl Bridges-Johns will be lecturing on her recently released book, Re-Enchanting the Text, Discovering the Bible as Sacred, Dangerous, and Mysterious. And then on August 23rd, psychotherapist Eric Minton will be lecturing on his book, It's Not You, It's Everything, What Our Pain Reveals About the Anxious Pursuit of the Good Life. All lectures are at 7 p.m., and the church address is in the show notes. We'd love to see you there. Here is Dr. Chris Green, The Fire and the Cloud of Biblical Christology. Well, good evening. So what I thought I would do is just kind of give a big-picture sketch of what this book is. That should be done already, but is not quite done, will be, Lord willing. I'm down to the last chapter. I'm down to the last section of the last chapter, and it has to be done before I'm bishoped. It should have been done already, but hopefully that can happen in the next 10 days. So pray with me about that, or send me the stimulants that will help reach my deadline on time. It's funny to hear Phil introduce me as someone with a lot of gifts because the fact is I'm really good at one thing, which is reading, and then I just kind of work that in a few different directions, right? Like that, I was born middle Oklahoma to very blue collar. My dad was a Marine and then a cop and then a mechanic. You know, my grandfather was, worked for the water department and was before that a driller for oil wells. And I'm a reader of texts, so that was, let's put it like this, they didn't see me as particularly gifted when I was, uh, when I was young. I lacked all skills. And as I matured, it turned out I wasn't developing any adulting skills either. Thankfully, I was able to get married at some point, so I'm still alive. But I really, really do have this love for reading. And it's that love for reading that led me to this book. And trying to write this book, which is entitled The Fire and the Cloud, The Fire and the Cloud. Now, the the original title, what I proposed, was The Wandering Jew, and we'll talk a little bit about how that title changed and what, why I was drawn to that language, that old story of the Jew who's cursed to wander the earth. But the the title that we will, we will go with is called The Fire in the Cloud, which is drawn, of course, from the Exodus story. And that's the chapter that I'm writing now, and then I'm going to try out on you tonight. You can help me finish the chapter with some helpful feedback, and I, I, if it's really helpful, I'll footnote you. I'll say something. 
I may even name you, or I may just simply say, as someone in an audience once said to me. <laughs> so here's your chance to, to be a published author if you're, if you're looking for it. So what I, what I think I'll do first is just sketch the big picture of the book, give you the outline, what my plan is, talk a little bit about the backstory, why I came to write it, and then we'll hone in on that particular last chapter, which is not yet done, but you're going to help me finish. And then we'll stop and we'll have some Q&A, right? Along the way, as I'm talking, if, if something is really pressing and you, you just simply can't wait, you have to ask the question, go ahead. I mean, I've been a teacher for a long time. I'm comfortable with that kind of interruption. Hopefully it's not to denounce me or curse me. I've, I have had that happen before. In speaking, I was teaching on the book of Job once and I noticed there was a, a man roughly twice my size who was not looking terribly happy. And so I asked him if everything was okay. And he said, no. I said, well, what are you thinking? He said, well, I'm thinking about walking up there and punching you right in the face is what I'm thinking. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not Job. Please don't do that to me. And everyone laughed and thankfully he didn't do that. That's not the strangest response I've gotten. I won't even tell you about, about that because this is being recorded and I'm afraid that that story would get back to the person. Yeah, we don't want that to happen. So let's start then with how this book came to be. The, the preface that's in the book now, the first line of the preface is, I didn't mean to write this book and I didn't. Some books I write because I want to, most of them because I'm told to. There's a book called Surprised by God. We were talking about this before tonight, I almost said before tonight's service, but this is not a service. I may get preachy because I'm a Pentecostal kid, but this is not a service exactly. So before tonight, we were talking about a sermon I preached years ago called God is Not in Control, and afterward, which was born out of a sermon I heard the week before entitled God is in Control. I'll let you put to do the math on how that second sermon happened. And when I, when I was finished with it, my wife said, you have to write a book about that. And so I wrote that book because she made me. This book, I did not write uh, on purpose. It just, it just kind of happened. The book that Phil mentioned a moment ago, All Things Beautiful, is one that I wanted to write, which is a reflection on Jesus in the light of art. I, I, I am a theologian because of the arts first. Uh, my first religious experience, my first kind of mystical encounter was in front of a painting. My parents took me to a museum in Oklahoma, not far from where I lived in Tulsa, and I kind of wandered off from them. They were somewhere else in the museum, and when they found me, I'm about seven or eight years old at this point, I'm standing in front of a painting by Enoch Kelly Haiti and entitled, Emptiness Has a Claim on Death, and I'm weeping. And I didn't even understand why. I, had, I mean, of course, I had no language for what was happening to me or why. But it was a, truly a transcendent experience for me, that, that painting. And now a print of it hangs in my living room where we, we live now in Cleveland, Tennessee. And then jump from that to college. I'm taking a class. It's an American literature class because I liked the professor and I hated school at this point. Not because I, I loved learning, but I didn't like going to class. And that turned into, I mean, I ended up failing out of college, Bible school at that. I mean, I was like the only kid who didn't pass, and it was just because I wouldn't go to class. But I loved this particular class. Mr. Harris is teaching American literature. I liked him, so I went. 
And he taught us about Moby Dick. And while he was, I hadn't read the book, hadn't read a line of the book, but just while he was introducing it, it's like my mind caught on fire for the first time. And I realized that I love theology. So Herman Melville is to blame for all of the heresy you have to deal with in my theological work. Seems fitting. So that, that my love for literature, my love for art, kind of led me to theology. I was raised in a church where theology was something you didn't need to do, you shouldn't want to do. You should believe what the Bible says. Right? We were absolutely certain that we had all of our ducks in a row because we were just reading what the Bible plainly says. We're not bothering it or obscuring it with theology. No one in my world would have, would have imagined being a theologian. So if I hadn't had my imagination awakened by those works, I would never have come to theology. What that's meant in the long run is that I am drawn to imaginative readings of stories and I'm drawn to the scriptures that provoke my imagination. So that, that last book, All Things Beautiful, is something I'd wanted to write for a long time. Reflections on Terrence Malick's films and what they've taught me about Jesus or this, this piece of painting or that piece of poetry. And then I also wanted to write a dogmatic Christology, a kind of doctrine of Jesus. Here's what Christians believe about who Jesus is and why that matters. And as I was preparing to write that, it just hit me one day, I need to actually engage the biblical text in depth. So just like I'd done with film and poetry and art, I need to do something like that with the biblical text. And so as this often happens with me, I woke up with that thought. 10 minutes later, I sent an email to the publishers for the first book and said, hey, what about this? You want to do this? And within three minutes, they said yes, which is not always how that goes. And I was like, sure, okay, now I'm in. So I started writing. And I realized it was going pretty well. I was writing quite a bit. I had a lot to say, I thought. And then I realized this is not going to work because I'm not grappling with something I didn't even know was bothering me. It was deeply bothering me, but I didn't have language for it. I didn't even know how to name it at all. I was reading what we Christians call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible Christologically. What do the stories of Genesis and so on have to say to us about Jesus? And I realized I have to stop and grapple with the ways in which Christians have mistreated Jewish people. I mean, that's a, a long, ugly history that's still unfolding. And with the ways in which Christians have used these texts to justify not just mistreatment of Jewish people, but mistreatment of other people, all kinds of people, using what we imagine to be the meaning of the Old Testament to justify violence of all kinds and oppression of all kinds. And of course, that slowed the process down considerably because I realized I have to think and pray through what these problems even mean for me before I get to the writing of the book. And so that's what I've been doing. What, in, what ended up happening is I developed a kind of, and there's a, a man named Franz Rosenfeig who wrote this really well-known book called The Star of Redemption. He is a Jewish 
theologian who was drawn, Jewish theologian and philosopher, deeply steeped in the work of Martin Heidegger. He is drawn to Christianity. He has friends who are Christians. This is in pre-World War II Germany. He's drawn to Christianity, having been raised a Jew, and he's about to convert. He's about to decide to announce himself as a Christian, and he has a kind of conversion back to Judaism. And this book, The Star of Redemption, is his philosophy of Jewish and Christian ways of being in the world as different, but not so opposed that they're irreconcilable. They, they remain different. They remain other than each other, but that they belong to what God is doing in the world together. There's a mutuality between them, that providentially God is working in the Jewish people in a particular way and working in Christianity and the church in a different way. And he uses, like one of the things that arrested me is he uses the image of the star of David and the cross as the symbols for these two different movements of God. So he says the cross, which you can imagine easily enough, signifies the universality of God's love, that God's love is for everyone and is intended to include everyone. It's fully open. It's fully open sky to ground and east to west, right? It, it is widely open. But the Star of David represents enclosure. It represents the welcome that God offers to all those who are invited. And of course, this is right out of the language of the prophets, that in the last days, the nations will gather to Zion, where God is enthroned, and all, all, the, all the nations, you know, no one will need to teach anyone, come and see the Lord, because the Lord, they will know the Lord themselves. He will write his law on their hearts and put his spirit within them. So this is Rosenweig's argument. And I wanted to work from that assumption. How would we talk about Jesus as Christians if we believed that the God of Abraham, the father of Jesus, is in fact working both with Jews and Christians, not to cancel each other out, not to make all Christians Jews or all Jews Christians, but in order to bring all of the nations into the blessing of Abraham. How might we talk about that? And what would, if we were committed to talking like that, what would that do to the way we talk about Jesus and the way that we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through? Like, how would that change the way we read the Old Testament? Is it possible? So you've probably heard this term, supersessionism. Supersessionism, which is just the idea that the church, and it, of course, it comes in all kinds of forms, but it's an old idea, one of the oldest, in fact, and it is simply that the church replaces the Jews as the people of God. So in this, and again, there, there are nuanced and sophisticated versions of this teaching, and then there are kind of less sophisticated versions of this teaching. I had to stopped myself from saying what came to mind, but this supersessionist teaching is the idea that God called Abraham, formed the Jewish people, but once Jesus comes, that is over with. That covenant, which we often refer to as the old covenant, is done away with. And that all that it meant to be the chosen people of God is put behind us. 
And from that point on, there is a new covenant for all people, and all of that belongs to the old covenant is put away. And usually, not always, but usually, that account is shot through with deep anti-Semitism, which is a kind of racial or ethnic prejudice against Jewish people, Semitic peoples, but also anti-Judaism or anti-Jewishness more directly. So it's aimed not just at Semitic people ethnically, but also at the religion of the Jews, at Judaism. And it is often bound up with all kinds of assumptions about what that religion is. So I grew up, and I'm guessing a lot of you did as well, with some assumptions that not only is the Old Testament God different than the New Testament God, but also the Old Testament people were legalistic. They, they were bound to the law. They were pharisaical, right? How, think of how we use that language. The Pharisee is someone who is legalistic and judgmental and condemning. And all of these are prejudices that are false to what's actually in the text and reinforce bad ways of reading our current situation and bad ways of reading our history and bad ways of reading scripture and therefore bad ways of constructing theology, what we say about Jesus. So we often talk about Jesus in ways in which his Jewishness gets lost altogether. It becomes merely a an aspect of the story, a footnote in the story, that what matters is he transcends it, right? The, the Jews are legalistic, but Jesus was not. The Jews are, are hyperventilating about the Sabbath, but Jesus is healing on the Sabbath day. The Jews are concerned about holy places, but Jesus says that everywhere is the house of God, and so on, and so on, and so on. Again, most of us do that, or I shouldn't say most, many of us do that even while we are explicitly opposing racism, because anti-Semitism and anti-Jewishness is more deeply built into us than modern racism is. Willie Jennings, I know Phil and I, you've had, you and I have had conversations about this. This is why Willie Jennings will say that that anti-Semitism and anti-Jewishness that's a part of supersessionism, this is the seed from which modern racism grows. That when Christians forget that they are Gentiles drawn into the Jewish people and into the way of the faith of Abraham, when they forget that, they forget who they are, they start to imagine the world wrongly, they start to imagine their calling wrongly, and we end up with, one of the consequences we end up with is the colonial imagination that creates whiteness, this notion that our humanity is something we construct We've risen above all of these old, benighted, pharisaical, legalistic, Judaistic ideas and practices. And I'm absolutely 110%, as we say, committed to saying that that is wrong. It has to be opposed explicitly on every front, it has to be called out, it has to be faced. And whatever we're going to say about Jesus, whatever we're going to say about what Jesus reveals about God, whatever we're going to say about the church, has to be done not by contrast with Israel, but in the light of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the law that's given to Moses, and the scriptures that we know as the Old Testament. That we cannot talk about Jesus rightly, and we cannot talk about the God he reveals rightly, and we cannot talk about the way of life he calls us to live rightly, if 
we're doing that by contrast with the Jews, with the law, with the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant. So far, are you tracking kind of what I'm arguing for? It'll make more sense, I think, hopefully, as we talk, but that, that was the commitment. What would a non-supersessionist, anti-supersessionist reading of the Old Testament look like, and what would it tell us about Jesus? That was the question that I was asking, and I wanted to do it in a way that would honor Rosenweig's work. And so the book kind of fell into three parts, and each part has three chapters. This is a direct homage to his work. And each chapter has three parts. So part one, part two, part three. Each part has three chapters. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then each one of those chapters has three parts in it. And here's the way that that breaks down. Each chapter begins with a reading of an Old Testament narrative of travel. A story about people going from one place to another. And what I try to do in each one of those sections, there are, of course, nine of them, is to read the text as closely as I can without jumping to theological conclusions about it. Just let the text say what it says as best as I can see it. And in each one of those sections, I try to privilege Jewish, not Christian readers of the text. So it's a kind of act of hospitality. David Ford, who was, he's retired now, but he was a professor at Cambridge, helped start a, a project, an ecumenical and interreligious project in which people from different faiths, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, etc., would get together to read biblical texts together with no agenda other than just how do we read these texts? How does your community read it? How does our community read it? And I found out about that project after I had started this one and realized that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to read this. Of course, I'm a Christian and I'm going to make arguments that are Christian, but I want to start by trying to hear this text on its own terms and to privilege, just bring in dialogue partners who read it differently than the way I've been taught to read it. So each chapter begins that way. And we're going to talk tonight about the book of Exodus and how that might work. The second part of each chapter and this is by far the hardest part of the book for me, is a look at a way in which some Christian reader has read that passage I just explored. Right? So each chapter begins with a reading of a, a story of travel, and then I move in the second part of each chapter to here's how a Christian or group of Christians read those passages or parts of those passages. That's hard in a couple of ways for me. One, it tests the limits of what I actually know about the history of Christian reading. You have to read a lot. Yeah, you know, writing a book means reading hundreds of books. And there are things that I thought I knew that I realized I don't know enough to write very much about it, so I've got to go and read some more, right? So most of the time of writing this book has been reading other books about what Christians have said about these texts. I'll give some examples in a moment that'll fill in the blanks. And only then do I come in the third part of each chapter to a constructive theological account of what this tells us about Jesus. So if this text says what I'm reading it to say, and if we engage with these Christian readings of that text, what do we learn about Jesus in that process? Like how does Jesus show himself to us in, in the unfolding of all of that? So the first chapter of the book is about Cain and Abel. 
which is, of course, a story of traveling from Eden. And also, it begins with Cain saying to Abel, let us go into the field. And then, of course, ends with Cain being sent into exile. So the very first chapter is a chapter about exile, out of Eden, into the field, in, out of the presence of God. One of the things that surprised me about that, particular, once I started reading the text closely, is what it doesn't say, what the text doesn't say. And if there's anything, you, if, if, if you forget everything else I say tonight, remember this about reading scripture. You're not reading well until you start to notice what it's not saying that you expected it to say. Like you, you're, not, you're not really reading yet. I told you I have one gift and this is it. This is why I want you to remember it. That you're not really reading a text, any text by the way, Moby Dick or Genesis, until it's, you realize it's saying something different from what you were expecting it to say. And you've got to be able to see, I expected it to say this, but it said this instead and here's why that matters. Why did I think it was going to say that? What led me to think that would be next? Because that's going to tell you about what's in your heart and what's in your imagination already. That's what you've been led to expect to find. And that's going to be a kind of referendum on who taught you, what they considered important, what they wanted to come out of reading the text. It's odd. I was raised by people who loved the Bible but didn't read it very well. Like we memorized it. We quoted it. We just didn't actually pay attention to what the words meant. I had read through the King James multiple times by the, times I, by the time I was 10. I could quote huge passages of the King James. To this day, if I quote a passage off the cuff, I almost certainly will quote it from the King James because I learned it as a kid. But I never thought about what it was saying. I never once engaged what its claims were or questions were. So there's a kind of reading that was glancing off the surface of the text, right? And it was only when I learned to realize, oh, it's saying something different. I thought it was going to say this, but it says that, that I was awake to the text. I was starting to see what was happening. And at least enough to know that it could surprise me. It could surprise me. And that's a mark. That's a mark of a living God and a mark of a living text. If it never surprises you, you're not paying attention. It, you're just using it as a mirror for your own convictions. Right? You're, you're proof texting. So one of the things that surprised me when I started paying attention is how little is actually said. So we start, of course, as you know, Adam and Eve have been sent from the garden. And how many of you have been taught some version of they're sent out from the presence of the Lord, right? That they're expelled. But in the text, it's very clear the very next thing that happens after expulsion from the garden is children are born, and Eve says, I have, and this is, it's hard to translate, but it's something to the effect of, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I've gotten a man, or I've made a man with the help of the Lord. And then the next thing that happens is the Lord speaks. So notice, when they get kicked out of Eden, God goes with them. God is not in Eden. In the text, God leaves Eden when they do. God leaves Eden when they do. He goes with them. 
Eve is the first one to speak. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And Adam does not speak. And then I noticed Adam never speaks again, in fact. Once they leave the garden, Adam never speaks. He never speaks. And that's important because when Cain is born, she says, Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But when Abel is born, she doesn't say anything at all. That seems strange. You just had a child. You want to say thanks to God, perhaps. Adam doesn't say anything at all. And Abel never speaks. Abel's voice is never heard. His blood cries out from the ground, but we don't hear what he says. Cain talks and God talks. Here's another astounding thing. No one grieves. Did you know the first time, maybe you know this already, the first time anyone grieves in the Bible is Abraham when Sarah dies. Think about how far we are into the story We've had a flood, we've had the Tower of Babel, we've had the murder of a brother, we've had expulsion from Canaan. Nobody cries, nobody grieves until Abraham grieves Sarah. Why? Why do you think? What's what's the, the lesson the text is teaching us? That it's Abraham who first grieves Grieving is an act of faith. You don't know how to grieve until God makes it possible for you. Grieving is not natural. It's divine. That's what, that's what Genesis argues. Now, all of our assumptions is, are we were born screaming. I mean, when you, were, when you came into the world, you came into the world crying. So did I. But that's not grieving. Being able to recognize what you've lost and to hold it before God in prayer, that takes not just faith, but a revelation of the God who is worthy of faith. And so Abraham is the first to grieve. And the text teaches you that by what it does not say until suddenly it says, and Abraham grieved. And you realize, why? Why did no one grieve? Everyone died. And this is what you realize about Noah. Noah is a righteous man. Remember the way the the Bible refers to him. He was the most righteous man in his generation. But according to the rabbis, he's the least righteous of all the righteous. So he's righteous, but he barely made it in. Right? Like, you know, if if there's an elevator full of righteous people, he just squeezed on in the last moment, right? Barely got in between the doors. Why? Does anybody know? Why is Noah the least righteous of all the righteous? Because he does, somebody's going to say something. He doesn't intercede. He doesn't intercede. God tells him, I'm going to destroy everyone and start over with you. And he's like, sure. Sounds good to me. And then they come off the ark. Everyone is dead. And all he does is thank God that he lives. And strikingly, the text teaches us this, again, by what it doesn't say, he doesn't pray. But then also when he 
offers his offering, the text tells us, and Noah became a man of the soil. He became a man of the soil. And you know what happens next, right? He plants a vineyard, he gets drunk, and then I won't even, this is being recorded, so we won't even go into details about what happens next. By the way, don't read the Bible well if you don't want to be scandalized. It is not for the faint of heart when you pay attention. What is that little line, he was a man of the soil, what does that mean, do you think? What does it remind you of? Where did we hear that phrase first? Cain is a man of the soil. So Abel is a shepherd. Think about how many shepherds we're going to run into. Moses and David are shepherds. But Cain is a man of the soil. He's a man of the earth. And when Noah comes off the ark, he's a man of the earth. So what's the text teaching us? It's just giving us this one line. He's a man of the soil. Well, what? Supposedly, what was the purpose of the flood? What, what was God trying to do in the flood? Get rid of wickedness, yes? But what is this little one line right here, what does it tell us already? Before we get to what happens with his son in the tent, before the drunkenness, we already know that even if you wipe every sinner off the face of the earth and you only take the righteous... There is in the righteous already the seed of Cain. Right? This is a, a mind-blowing moment, for me at least, it might not be for you. When you read these texts closely, you realize that every single instance like that in the Bible, think about the, the scenes of divine judgment, like the flood, I mentioned the Tower of Babel, what, what are some others? Like moments in which God judges people in mass. What's that? Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember the story of Korah and the elders where the earth opens up and swallows them, that's another example. There a number of them, they, they, a, when the ark comes back from Philistia, the people lift the lid and look into it, Raiders of Last Ark style, and there's a plague that kills a lot of them. There are all these different accounts. You can do the research on your own if you'd like, but in every single one of those cases, Guess what happens right after it? Right, so there's a wickedness that God judges in mass. Again, flood, tower. What happens next? That same sin or something worse happens. So like the Sodom and Gomorrah story, for example. What's the very next thing that happens after Sodom and Gomorrah? You don't have to go into detail, but it involves Lot and his daughters. They do what Noah had done. They get him drunk, and then they do to him what Noah's son had done to his father. So in the aftermath of the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, the very first thing that happens is the righteous people commit a worse sexual sin than whatever brought the judgment in the first place. So what does that tell you? What's the lesson? Judgment doesn't work, even if God does it. Even if God himself destroys every wicked person on the face of the earth, you would be left and you would become the new seed of the new wickedness. Or I would, or we would, or they would. It doesn't work. That's already there. 
That's not a Christian invention later in the story. That's not something Jesus makes up from nothing. That's the text Jesus learned to read with his mother sitting there teaching him how to read. That's what those texts say. But you've got to read. You've got to pay attention. You've got to pay attention to what they're not saying. So that gives you a feel kind of for what I'm trying to do in the book. Let's, let's come to then the, the story, that, the, the chapter I'm writing now, which is the chapter on the Exodus. So the way that this lays out is, I'm going to read in just a moment, but the way this, is this okay so far? Is this too much? Is this like trying to get a drink from a fire hydrant? Is there a little too much happening? Hopefully not. The, the middle of the book, which is the chapter I'm writing last, I'm writing last because it's the pivot for the whole book, and it's the chapter about the Exodus. I told you that I'm dealing with stories of travel, so the opening chapter is the story of Cain and Abel. The second chapter is the story of Abraham, and you, get, you move from exile to pilgrimage. God says to Abraham, go, leave your father's house. And so he does, and the pilgrimage starts. And then, of course, it gets reenacted in Isaac, and it gets reenacted in Jacob. And then the third chapter of that first part is the first settlement, the first time you get a kind of settling, and that's the story of Joseph. And where does Joseph settle? In Egypt. And he gets there how? How does he end up? landing there. He's enslaved. He's sold by his brothers into slavery. Interesting detail about Joseph's story. How does it start? Like when when does it start to go wrong for Joseph? Why does it start to go wrong? Well, he brags, but before the bragging, that's true, but there's something that happens before the bragging. He's favored. Now, one of the stereotypes that has run through Christian history about Jewish people and about Judaism and about what we call the Old Testament is that there is this belief that they are the chosen people and therefore they're elitist, they're bragging about their chosenness. But this is going to surprise you, at least it surprised me. Chosenness in the Old Testament is not a grace. Everyone who's chosen suffers for it. Emil Dorian, who's a Romanian poet, wrote a, in, the, in the aftermath of, of World War II, published his, wrote his diary. It's a really famous work from that period called The Romanian Diary. And there's a, a section in there, an, an entry one day. In, he says his favorite, I don't think he says favorite, he says the, a, a, a well-known and much-loved joke amongst us Jews is this prayer. Almighty God, we have been your chosen people for 5,000 years. Enough. Let someone else have a turn. (laughs) Now, it's hilarious until you realize this is is the Holocaust. That for 5,000 years, Israel's experience has not been Blessing and victory and triumph and glory. It's been exile and expulsion and judgment and loss. 
And so that joke is telling you a truth that's already in Israel's scriptures. You don't want to be chosen. You may think you want to be chosen, but you do not want to be chosen. Because to be chosen is to be singled out to bear the suffering of God for the sake of the world. If you are chosen, you will suffer. And you will suffer what God suffers. Who wants that? I don't. No one wants that. And so, Joseph is favored. And you know already what that's going to mean. And sure enough, it happens. His brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up there. He, he thrives in a way. But there's a detail in the text in terms of what the text does not say that should catch us. Joseph has dreams. Remember this? This is the kind of detail you've got to learn to notice. And I didn't, I've never seen it before until I was writing the chapter for this book. It doesn't say God gave him the dreams. Every other time in Genesis when people dream, or the Pentateuch, every other time people dream, God is involved. We don't know if Joseph's dream is from God or not. The text doesn't say, and God sent Joseph a dream, or the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. We get that over and over again. Think about Jacob. Jacob, the Lord appears to him in a dream, or Abraham, the Lord appears to him in a dream. But when Joseph dreams, it just simply said, and Joseph had a dream. Now, where does that put you as a reader? Where did this dream come from? Is this God's dream? We don't know yet. And so Joseph is sold into slavery, and they settle in Egypt. And there's this little detail right at the end of the Joseph story in which his father dies, the father that favored him dies. His brothers are still angered and embittered, and they're afraid of Joseph as well. And when, Joseph's, when their father dies, he gets permission from the Pharaoh to take their father's body to the promised land, to Canaan, and they bury him there. And then Joseph goes back home, back to Egypt with his brothers, and he dies there. And what's his last word to his brothers? All of you will know this, surely. What's his last word to them? Take my bones with you when you go. Take my bones with you, which tells you what? He didn't say take my body. He said take my bones, meaning he knows this is going to take a while. And he makes them swear, and then he dies. Now notice, we've got his father, Israel, who dies and is buried in the land, buried in that place Abraham has set aside for his descendants to be buried in. But Joseph is buried in Egypt, and he's buried as an Egyptian. So you've got Joseph, the chosen one, the son of the chosen one, who ends up buried here, not there, and he's buried as an Egyptian, not as a Jew. But his last words are, don't leave me buried here. Take my bones with you. That's why he wants to be buried like an Egyptian. Because that burial method will enable him to be carryable later. Take me with you. Don't, don't bury me there yet because business isn't finished here. But in the end, I want to be buried there. I want to be taken there. You'll see why that matters as we come to the end. So that's the first section of the book. Then we move to the story of the Exodus, chapter 4, and then chapter 5, right at the center of the book, is the chapter 
on the wilderness wandering, which brings us to Exodus, all right? So let's turn to that now. How am I doing on time? I have no sense of if I've been talking for 11 minutes or 474 minutes. I have no idea. Okay. Israel's story is a story of a people on the move, often, if not always, against their will. The decisive event in that story, the true turning point, is the Exodus, which reveals both that Israel is a people, indeed the people of this God, and that there are many moves, most of which delay or baffle divine purposes, actually belong to one all-embracing, overarching movement. It is the exile, of course, you know the exile happens much, 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 much later, right? The exile being carried away into Babylon. It's the exile that teaches Israel the prophetic significance of the exodus. So Israel's texts, what we call the Old Testament, is very plain that even the stories that refer to an older history were written after these events that are more recent. So one of the things that happens in Scripture in the Hebrew Bible over and over again is things happen out of sequence. I'll get to one example tonight maybe. Uh, Well, I'll just tell it to you now. So there's a moment in which God is appearing, Exodus 19. He's appearing what will lead to Exodus 20 and the giving of the commandments. He's appearing to all of Israel, a theophany to the whole nation. And the text says that even the priests must remain within the boundaries. Now, there aren't priests yet. In the story, we haven't gotten to Leviticus. We haven't gotten to the end of Exodus. There aren't priests yet. Now, are these people, do they just not know what they're doing? Have they forgotten the story that they're telling? Why tell me now that the priests are not allowed to enter the presence if there aren't priests yet? Well, you have a choice as a reader. Unfortunately, a lot of academics, a lot of white academics, a lot of European academics made the assumption that there are lots of different stories, different versions of the story that are kind of floating around in the ancient world, and that during the time of the exile, Jewish redactors, that's the fancy term for it, put together or they edit a text that kind of smashes together different versions without really paying attention to what's happening. And so we end up with a text that's full of contradictions and gaps and loopholes and confusions. And that for a long time was the standard academic reading. That when you're reading a story like that and you see, oh, there's a reference there about priests, that's because hundreds and hundreds of years later, there is a Jewish community that's trying to make a point about priests and so they're inserting it back into the story. But just in general, whenever you're condescending to other people, you're going to end up looking like a fool. And what's happening with those scholars, I mean, even if they're right that there are multiple versions, like you can't read the scripture well, you certainly can't read it well as scripture if you think you're smarter than the people that gave you the text. If you come to these texts, really anyone, but especially scripture, you know, sacred scripture with the assumption that I just can't believe these people were stupid enough to believe this or say it, you don't have a chance to hear what it is that they're doing. Now, I, I want to be sensitive here. I want, I want you to hear what I am saying, not what I'm not saying. You know, on the day of Pentecost, they are 
speaking in tongues and everyone hears in their own language. I have the opposite gift. I'm speaking in English and some of you have no idea what I'm saying, right? It's the opposite Pentecost gift. But try to hear this. It is, it's important to realize when you're reading these texts, there are things that are going to bother you, things that are going to trouble you. And your response to that should be, first of all, don't downplay it. Don't ignore it. If it's bothering you, pay attention to it. But assume that it's bothering you because the text wants it to. Don't assume it's bothering you because you know something the text doesn't know. Because if you come from that place, if you're reading the text and you're seeing this story, some detail in the story, and you're, and you're bothered by it, and your thought is, how could people ever believe that about God? Notice the position. You're, you're in a morally superior position. You're posturing yourself like, I know what's right. How could these people not know? Right? We do this with the apostles all the time, right? We're reading the gospels, and in the gospels, the apostles are always doing stupid stuff. And the more important they are, Peter, the stupider it is what they're doing. And it's easy to read that and think, God, how, how could these people be like this? But you have to recognize their stupidity is for your gain. This is what it means to be chosen. You get to, God gets to parade your stupidity around for the world to see. That's your gift. That's what you get to give people. That's what they get to give people. This is, this is shocking to me. I mean, I never get, I'm blown back by this over and over and over again. In scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, there are no heroes. There are prophets, there are saints, there are apostles, but there are no good guys. Every single one of them, every single one of them is deeply, deeply conflicted, except for Jesus, and he's divine and mysterious and is even harder to access. If you think of characters like Abraham and you pay attention to what's actually told, I mean, I grew up at a flannel graph Sunday school church. Does anybody know what I'm talking about with that? We airbrushed, philosophically speaking, we airbrushed all of those characters. We turned Abraham and David, Noah, and the rest of them into exemplary humans. Not just saints, but super saints. But the fact is, there are no people in the text, including New Testament text, Peter, Paul, anyone else. There are none of those people in the text who are not deeply conflicted, deeply flawed, and mostly teaching you by what they get wrong. Over and over and over again. I mean, think about the most pressing example for me is David. So David is the psalmist. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the giant killer, right? But in the text, not in our preaching, but in the text, David is terribly conflicted. Right from the very beginning, when he's going out to fight Goliath, you remember the story of Kim killing Goliath, right? Well, one of the things the text goes out of its way to tell us that we very rarely pay attention to is that David keeps asking people, 
if I go fight this giant, what will I get for it? What will the king do for the man who slays that giant? And then his oldest brother sees David and he says, I know your heart. You are opportunistic. You are looking for a way to make a name for yourself. And guess what? He is. Because every single thing that happens from that point on to the end of David's life is about him grasping for things. When David dies, when David dies, Solomon is there. What's happening outside the palace is another rebellion. Another son of David's is claiming the throne. And David is in the bed, calls the prophet in, calls Bathsheba in, calls Solomon in, and he's going to announce to Solomon that he's going to be the next heir. And he tells Solomon, you know, fear the Lord, obey the commandments. But then, does anybody know the last words out of David's mouth? He starts naming off all of his enemies. And he says to Solomon, do not let any of them go down to the ground without blood. So think about this. The man who wrote the Psalms, the man whose mouth was filled with praise, dies with his mouth filled with curse. That's how he dies. Noah, the man whose life saves humanity, dies under a curse and having spoken a curse on his own family. Abraham is estranged from his wife, estranged from both of his sons, Ishmael and Isaac, because he's tried to kill them both. Which you want to talk about family trauma, not drama, family trauma. Imagine killing your sons and telling them God told you to do it, or trying to kill your sons and telling, you, telling them God told you to do it. And at the end of Abraham's life, he remarries and takes concubines and has other children. And guess what he does with those children? Sends them away. He exiles every child he has. Now, does that feel, I mean, I don't know if he's going to be on James Dobson's radio show or not once that news gets out. If, if we had hours, and I mean, the book will be here eventually, hopefully, you can read it for yourself. But every single character is like that. Why? Why would God give us such deeply flawed people? Because we're more deeply flawed. As bad as Abraham was as being a dad, you don't want to hear about me as a dad. I haven't tried to kill my children and claim that God did it. But how much damage have I done without noticing it? Emmanuel Levinas, who's a really well-known Jewish philosopher, he makes this point about the Old Testament. He texts and he says, yes, it's filled with violence. Yes, it's filled with horror. So you will notice it in your own life. But to notice it in your own life, you have to honor it in the text. You have to recognize God has told me this this way because I need to hear it. And I need to hear it this way. I'm the student, not the teacher. I'm not here to fix what the text says. I'm not going to explain anything away. I'm not going to dumb it down. I'm not going to cover it over. I'm going to let it be what it is because I need it in some way. I'm almost done and then we'll do some Q&A. 
By the way, I've written more than a paragraph. I'm just not going to read it all here. It's the exile that teaches Israel the prophetic significance of the Exodus. In Babylon and after their return, Israel learns that the Lord, although always faithful, is never predictable. Despite what appears at any given time to be the case, the divine purposes, however frustrated or obscured by their failures, are never actually thwarted, never actually marred, because there truly is no end to Yahweh's resourcefulness and dependability. In the words of 2nd Isaiah, let the wicked forsake their way, let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. We quote that line all the time, don't we? My ways are not your ways. The point is my mercy is not your mercy. The entire point of that passage is not that God might be cruel and you'll have to deal with it because he's God after all. It's that his ways are not your ways. His ways remain hidden because his mercy is deeper than you or I can stomach. He is going to be merciful to people we will not be merciful to. And we are one of those people others would not be merciful to. Knowing that, we can better appreciate the story's final, remarkably disjointed shape. Reading its inconsistencies, discrepancies, ambiguities, puzzles, and contradictions, not as problems to be explained or explained away, but as difficult graces, misfeatures of a purposely unsettling design. Certainly the narrative as it stands, and here I'm talking about the whole of what we call the Old Testament, it stands, it presents contradictory viewpoints, indeed contradictory plot points about matters both large and small. And critical scholarship, this is what I was saying a moment ago, by and large suggests that this is because the book is a composite of alternative stories which are themselves literary indicators of an underlying oral tradition, building on a common foundation but erecting very different structures. But that explains too much. The flaws and imperfections, however they came to be historically, afforded the final form of the story its mysterious literary and theological power. The bricolage is effective. It's all pieced together. It doesn't quite make sense. And precisely in that way, it is more effective. It affects us more than any streamlined account could hope to. Because its discontinuities unfinish the narrative, so to speak, worrying readers toward more careful attention, frustrating attempts to treat the story as merely a chronicle. Now, hopefully you hear that difference. I think a lot of us read these passages like chronicles, and then we ask, I don't mean this insultingly, but dumb questions like, you know, where was Noah's Ark, or where was the mountain of God, or was David a real person, or did Jonah exist? Like, all of those are studies in missing the question. One of my favorite artifacts is a commentary on the book of Jonah from the 1800s that's that big. If you, you could hold it in your hand like this, it's 900 and something pages. 600 and something of those pages are devoted to whether or not stories of people being swallowed by fish are credible. I mean, God has to just be laughing his tail off at that, right? He gives us the story of Jonah, and what we want to know is, well, is it possible for a fish to swallow a human? You're not letting the story affect you at all. 
Notice, as funny as that is, what you're doing with the story is you're, you're holding it at arm's length. You're treating it like a curiosity. Right? It's like a figure on a flannel board. You're Jonah. You're the person in the boat. My wife was reading, why she was reading the Jonah story, I don't know. We'll let, let, let her speak for that. But she was reading the Jonah story to our youngest. How old was he, six at the time, something like that? Emery. And she's reading, do you want, you want to tell us, am I, are you okay with me telling it? You can correct me as I get it wrong. But she's reading the Jonah story to him and she, she's reading along about them, him saying, throw me overboard. And Emery says, well, they, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't throw him overboard. And Julie's like, well, just wait. We're going to let us read the story. So she keeps reading. He's like, what? They threw him. Why would they do that? Who cares? And this is what he said. They should have all gone down in the ship rather than save themselves by throwing over one man. Right? I mean, think about what Caiaphas says about Jesus. Better that one man die than that all the people perish. So when we're reading John's gospel, we're like, Come on, Caiaphas, you can't kill Jesus to save yourself. And then we read the Jonah story and we're like, what? We don't stop. But he was young enough. He wasn't indoctrinated enough yet not to be bothered by it. He let the text be what it was. And so he said, they shouldn't throw him overboard. What? They threw him overboard. Why would they do that? And then what happened with Julie is this kind of recognition of why was I not troubled? How is it that we decorate our kids' nurseries with the stories of Jonah and Noah, which are about mass genocide? I mean, it's funny, but it's funny in the way that that joke is funny about God picks somebody else after 5,000 years. This is how desensitized we've been. We've been so poorly Christianized, we're inoculated against the truth of our own texts Our imaginations have been blunted and our affections have been blunted. And part of it is because we are afraid to let the text affect us the way it wants to. The fact is, if you just read the Bible, if you just read it, your heart will always side with the wrong people. When you read the story of Hagar and Ishmael, you don't side with Sarah. Your affections go with Hagar. Your affections go with Ishmael. When you read the story of Joseph and bragging about his dreams, you don't think, oh, he's such a precious boy. You think, what a brat. I'd throw him in in the pit too. I might not sell him to the Egyptians, but I, I certainly would give him some trouble. And so on, and so on, and so on. Why? This is what happened. I was sitting in a lecture with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Who's, who's no longer with us. And he said, talking about those texts, he said, what makes you think they weren't written to do that to you? And the scales fell from my eyes. These stories are designed to trouble us, to trouble us toward prayer, to trouble us toward study, to, to humble us, to shut our mouths a little, And to pay attention. We have to learn to pay attention. And this is one of the ways in which it's teaching us. So I'm going to end with this. The middle part of this chapter is an engagement with a very strange man 
named Johann Georg Heymann, who was, ah, I mean, if I have more children, I'm going to name them Georg because of how much I love him. And I really am. I'm Julie saying no, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. So this guy, he was a good friend of Immanuel Kant. Tells you a little bit about kind of who he is. He was not really an academic. He worked for the government. He was a Lutheran, kind of nominal Lutheran. His life starts falling apart, and he locks himself in his room and starts reading the Bible, which I don't advise. I don't think that normally works, but it worked for him. And I want to read to you just a bit about what he says. He keeps a journal about his time. So he's in London. He, he, was, he had a, a, a terrible speech impediment, and so he couldn't speak publicly. He, he loved theology, but he couldn't be in ministry because of how affected his tongue was in that way like Moses. And, but he was astoundingly brilliant, especially with languages. And so he made a career out of working in languages, writing translations, um, doing a kind of, um, I've forgotten the word for it just now, but where you, someone speaks in one language and you translate it to another live, whatever the word for that is. So he, and he, he would work, do this for his business as well. But he's in London, it goes badly, he's in the hotel, wherever he's staying, and he reads, and he reads, and he reads. And I want you to listen to what he hits upon. Praise God. He, oh, he's, he says, I, he, he's long, I'm longing for a friend who has the key to my heart. And he says, praise God, I found this friend in my heart who crept in just when I felt most empty, dark, and desolate. By this time, if I'm not mistaken, I'd read through the whole of the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice, and so I decided to start again. The further I went, the newer it became for me. The more divine was my experience of its content and effect. And he just kind of goes through kind of what's happening to him. I'm skipping because we don't have a lot of time. In the midst of these reflections, which seemed rather mysterious to me, I read the fifth chapter of the fifth book of Moses. Now, part of the context for this, you've got to understand, like I mentioned, he's already, he's friends of Immanuel Kant. He is in the same city, in the same world as Voltaire. He's surrounded by enlightenment philosophers who are mocking the Old Testament, mocking not just Christianity, but traditional Christianity and traditional Judaism. And he's drawn to the text for just that reason. He's just contrary enough to say, I'm going to stick my nose in that text and see what God does. And so he's reading the fifth book of Moses on the evening of March 31st, Palm Sunday, I think, and fell into deep meditation. I thought about Abel and God's word about him. The earth had opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. I felt my heart thump. I heard a voice groaning and wailing in the depths of my heart like the voice of blood, like the voice of a murdered brother who wanted his blood avenged, even though I at times did not hear it and shut my ears to it continually. It said, this voice, this was what made Cain restless and unable to escape. 
At once, I felt my heart flowing. It poured itself out in tears, and I could no longer, I could no, and he breaks off and then picks up again. I could no longer hide from God that I was the killer of my brother, the murderer of his son. Despite my great weakness, despite the long resistance which I had until now put up against his witness and his tender touch, the Spirit of God kept revealing to me more and more the mystery of divine love and the benefit of faith in our gracious Savior. And so he goes on, continues, he talks about his conversion. He then writes a a commentary on the whole Bible, which is pretty brief. He's just making notes as he reads through it. And then just at the end of his life, not, I mean, not long before he died, he wrote this. The Jews still remain a mirror in which we see God's mysteries in the human redemption of the race as a riddle. In 1 Kings, Solomon still continues to pray for them. David still always lives who at that time prayed for God's tolerance when they should become old and their strength would fail them. For our sake they were struck, so that we would marvel at the wealth of his patience and the riches of divine forbearance in their preservation and would be led to repentance. Is it not the same unbelief that reigns in us? And should we not learn from its penalties for this nation to fear for ourselves? Have we not crucified God's son as they have? Do we not build the tombs of the prophets that they have put to death? Can we Christians read Obadiah without dismay? Are not the Gentiles threatened with just the same end? We Gentiles who have been in the same olive tree whose branches were discarded and chopped off by God through our hands. Has Jesus ceased to be the king of the Jews. Now, it's one thing for me on this side of the Holocaust to say that. But this man is saying this in the teeth of the Enlightenment when it was illegal for, and, and incredibly dangerous for Jews to be present in much of Europe. I mean, I, I, one of the chapters in the book talks about John Calvin's sermons in Geneva on the book of Malachi, and he talks about the Jews, but there hadn't been Jews living in Geneva for, for more than 100 years at that point because they had been expelled. So he's preaching about Jews in a Christian city where it's illegal for Jews to be present. That's the world that Haman is writing in. And for him to see Jesus is the king of the Jews. These people, David still lives. This is the way in which God shapes us. Like that, that's a way forward for us. That's a way of reading that provides it. So I leave you with this image and feel we, we can do Q&A now if we have time for it or not, whatever, whatever you think. You know, I mentioned that detail about Joseph and the bones. So in this chapter on the Exodus, one of the things that I come back to is that when Israel is going out, the time for the Exodus is here, you know, Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, the plagues, all that. Did you know it was right there in the story, but it's easy to miss, the night Israel goes out from Egypt, do you know what the text says Moses does? 
And he gathered the bones of Joseph and took them with him. Notice all those singular pronouns. He gathered those bones and took them with him. Do you see what's happening? This is what makes Moses Moses with all his faults. And by the way, he dies under judgment. He doesn't go into the promised land. His last act is losing his temper because his people despise his sister. That's a story for another day. You know, this is what makes Moses Moses. He's raised in an Egyptian house. Like the house Joseph died in. And he knows himself well enough to remember what it's like to be an Egyptian who learns that he's a Hebrew and to live with that dual consciousness. To live as a man the Egyptians consider to Hebrew and the Hebrews consider to Egyptian. And he knows his own history well enough to know someone else felt that way. Another chosen one. And on the night of their deliverance, Moses is not dreaming about what he's going to do when he leads people into the wilderness. He's not on Instagram celebrating the victory. You know what he's thinking about? We're not going to forget Joseph when we leave. And even though all of Joseph's brothers swore they would not forget, there is nobody but Moses thinking about it that night. But when everybody else is packing up to go, Pharaoh is finally caved. Moses is gathering bones. That's what scripture calls us to be, that kind of person. That even in the midst of whatever victory is playing out, we're remembering promises made to people who suffered most. That's what happens to us. And that is what Jesus does. When Jesus is dying, who's he thinking about? What's he doing? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mother, son, son, mother. Why is Jesus doing that? Because he read his texts well. There's nothing Jesus believes and there's nothing he teaches and there's nothing he lives that doesn't come straight out of those texts. He embodies them fully. That's how we have to read. Pastor Phil? Thank you, by the way. Dr. Green, thank you. Who has, who has questions tonight? We want to take a, take a few moments. Thank you. I'm sure Franz Rosenzweig has insights that we'd all benefit looking at Jews and looking yeah. at Christians. But he's a 20th century Jew who would have been influenced by 
two millennia of the yeah. Babylonian Talmud. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be less interested in his thoughts on supersessionism or Calvin's or Luther's than those Jewish writers of the New Testament who were closer, closer to those texts, yeah. unbur unburdened by a cultural heritage that's filtered through two millennia of persecution and Paul, James, John, yeah. Peter, they lived through that. Absolutely. And so I'd be more interested in their idea of supersessionism. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm happy to, I don't know if you're asking me to weigh in or if you're just acknowledging that. Definitely, yeah, how I would read that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. And I think that, I, so I don't think Paul could have imagined himself as not a Jew. That he had somehow ceased to be a Jew by following Jesus. Now, he absolutely thinks his life has changed because of Jesus, but he imagines that as fulfillment. You know, so when Jesus says, you know, the Matthew 5, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Not one jot, not one tittle is going to pass away. I'm going to fulfill every bit of it. I think all the apostles, including Paul, absolutely believe that they are fulfilling exactly what the scriptures say, exactly what the law requires in every detail. I don't think either Paul or Jesus or John or anyone else in the New Testament thought they were leaving Judaism. There wasn't even really Judaism at that point, like what we think of it now as Judaism hadn't formed yet, but the religion of the Jews at the time. You know, again, think about even in the book of Acts, Peter and John and the others are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They're doing it in the name of Jesus. They see Jesus as the way in which they are fulfilling that calling. So the, the, the notion of supersessionism is, isn't anywhere in the New Testament. It's a much, much later idea. And it's tied to the emergence of the Christian empire, really. For good or bad, it, that's where this idea comes from, that the Jews have to be put away. I mean, you can see this in Augustine, for example, he's struggling with it, and his mind changes on this over the course of his life. But it's really not instituted as a policy until you have Christian empires. So even though there are Christians who are Gentiles, who believe they are called to remain Gentiles, there are Christians who are Jews and believe they are called to remain Jews all through this period. And it's not until you get Christian governments, Christian authorities, that this idea really takes hold. Now, there are seeds of this idea. You know, when Paul will say things like, you are not a Jew outwardly, you are one inwardly. Romans 2, for example. When he says that, like, what he means is not, I'm not a Jew. Right? He's simply saying, because I'm a Jew, I have, to, I have to internalize that call. And that, for me, means following the way of Jesus. Living the law. So in Romans, when he talks about the law of the spirit versus the law of sin and death, he's talking about the same set of texts. The law being Torah, being the writings, the law and the prophets. There's a way of reading according to the flesh that leads to death. And there's a way of reading according to the spirit that leads to life. But what he's not doing is saying we need to get rid of the law. 
He's saying we need to read it differently. We need to read it in the spirit. And we know this because, and then he goes on to quote a bunch of Old Testament texts. So supersessionism is a political approach that's grounded in a theological and philosophical belief that the Jewish people as such are rejected by God. Now, there are a range of views. Like I said at the beginning, there are kind of, if you imagine them on a continuum, there are like hard versions of it and soft versions of it. So in hard versions of supersessionism, God has not only broken covenant with the Jews, but the Jewish people are under a curse. And this is where that, we didn't get to it tonight, but where that myth of the wandering Jew comes in, that the Jewish people as such are under a curse. And that is, a, is at the heart of that long history of Christian oppression. But in order to oppress, you've got to have the means of oppression. And that's why supersessionism politically is anti-Semitic. I mean, it's, that's the design of it. Philosophically, it's not just anti-Semitic, it's anti-Judaistic. So and those, of course, are different. And it's possible for people not to have any kind of personal animus toward their Jewish neighbor and still regard Jewish religion as something to be condemned. And what I'm arguing is not only that it's not right to have animus in your heart towards someone, but that the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Paul, all Christian belief depends upon the way of life that is given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David as the way of life to which we're called. That that's different if you're born a Jew versus a Gentile. And it's different if you're, and this, obviously these are deep waters, but that's different whether you're someone like Rosenweig who feels that he has to remain in the synagogue, right? So he's arguing, this is about a religious argument, a kind of, well, that both Jews and Christians must remain faithful to Judaism and Christianity. But whether, wherever you go with this, this argument is, I think, if you're going to argue for supersessionism, you're going to, even on the soft side of it, right, you're going to have to account for the, the fact that the, Jesus and the apostles are Jews, and that their way of life that they then share with the world is a way that is indebted to and is constantly referring back to what God did with these people. Right? So like in Romans, you know, Paul says, what advantage has the Jew then? And what's the next line? Does anybody know? What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. Much in every way. No, 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 no. Of course not. I mean, Christians can't believe that. Of course not. But the argument here is, so again, this is Romans 9 to 11, precisely what Paul's heart's broken about. He's fully convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, Sarah, everyone has been looking for this one, for Jesus. And by the way, this is the... The contention, I think, that makes the most sense, and it doesn't mean that Jews and Christians are going to agree about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, but our differences is there. The difference between Jews and Christians at the end of the day is not who is God, or what is faith, or what is obedience, or what is scripture. At the end of the day, our, our fundamental disagreement is, is Jesus God in the flesh or not? 
Now, if we believe that, and I do, of course, then there can't be salvation apart from him for anyone. Paul says exactly that. But notice how he says it. First of all, he says it from a place of incredible brokenness. I would count myself accursed if it could mean the salvation of my people. And then he starts with the vessels of honor and the vessels of dishonor, moves through that account of election, which is all a, a reflection on the texts of Israel's scripture about what it means to be elect. And it turns in chapter 10 on this line from Isaiah, I am found by those who do not seek me. I'm found by those who do not seek me. Which again, all, everything Paul is arguing in Romans 9 to 11 is drawn right out of Israel's scripture. It's all born out of his heartbreak for his people. And it's born out of his sense that God is the God of the Jews for whom there's advantage in every way. So as, you, as I'm sure you know, by the time he gets to the end of Romans 11, what is he saying? There's a tree, right? There's a tree, an olive tree. And the roots of that tree are what? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says to his Christian audience, you are beloved for their sake. You are Christians today because God made a promise to Abraham. I'm a Christian today because God made promise to Abraham. And Jesus is the way that he fulfilled that promise, the way that he made that promise possible. And then Paul says to his Gentile readers, what? You have been grafted in. You have been grafted in. Not one tree was cut away and God planted a new tree. You have been grafted into a tree that is still living, whose roots are still the Father's. And God's love for Abraham is what's sustaining this whole story. This is what Paul is arguing. And he says some of these branches have been cut off, talking about some of the Jews of his time. But notice he doesn't call them the tree, they're branches on the tree. And he says they have been cut off, but then what's the very next thing he says? He makes two points immediately after that. The first one is, but God is able to graft them in again. And who are you to think you cannot be cut off too? Right, so notice what he's done. There is only one tree. There's only one covenant. There's only one people of God. And they branch. And when those branches are unfaithful, they get cut off. But God grafts in when he's ready. And God cuts off when he's ready. But what he's grafting into and cutting off from is the faith delivered to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the faith that begins with that promise, go, I will make you a blessing through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. So absolutely, Jesus is the way this gets fulfilled. Absolutely, for Jew and Gentile alike. I mean, again, scripture is very, very clear about this. Our New Testament, that Jesus is the Savior of Jew and Gentile alike. But he doesn't save Jews by making them not Jews. He doesn't save Jews by doing away with the story of Abraham. He doesn't cut down the tree and, and plant a different tree. So Christianity is not the replacement of Israel. It is the being placed into Israel for the sake of the nations. We're being integrated or grafted in to what God has always been doing. 
not God stopping something and starting something new. Supersessionism says God stopped something and started something new. He put an end to this to start something else. What the scriptures say, old and new, is that God is all, God does not, again, let's quote Paul from Romans, right? The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And what's he talking about when he talks about the gifts and the calling? He means specifically Israel's gifts and Israel's calling. And over and over in Romans, when he talks about Israel, he talks about Israel in the present tense, not the past tense. He refers to Israel as the Israel of God. Present tense, not past tense. You can see this in, again, in all of the lives of the apostles. The reason that there is such a sharp contention is not that they're putting an end to their Jewishness, but they're contesting what it means to be truly Jewish. You can see this, and another example of this is Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts. A good, a good question to ask yourself is what gets these people killed? Right? What gets these people killed? What gets Jesus killed? What does he do that makes people so, so angry that they kill him? What does Paul do? That he, and Paul doesn't get killed in Jerusalem. He gets killed in Rome, and why? Why does Paul die there? Why does Peter die there? Well, Stephen does die in Jerusalem, and he's stoned to death, right? Why? Go back and read Stephen's, Stephen's sermon. It is not what Stephen says about Jesus that gets him killed. Does anybody know what gets him killed? It's what he says about the temple that gets him killed. Which is, incidentally, what gets Jesus killed. It's what he does in the temple. What, what he claims about himself in relation to the temple. So what you have with someone like Stephen, who's a diasporic Jew, he's come here to Jerusalem. He's challenging them, his audience, over what it means to truly be the people of God. He's not saying, I mean, he is a Jew. He's not saying that we should reject the law or we should reject scripture or reject prophets or reject the calling of God. What he's saying is you've made it into something else. You've built around this temple. You've artificially constructed a new identity that you're calling Jewish, but it's not actually. And that's what they kill him for. And that's incidentally, historically, that's why when that temple is destroyed, what emerges are two new religions really. Up to the point that the temple is destroyed, what we call Christianity is just an internal conflict within the various forms of Jewish faith. After the temple is destroyed, now we'll, we get what will truly be two religions, Judaism and Christianity. They start at the same time. The, the faith of the apostles is, I mean, obviously it's contested, but it's, it's not a, a contestation between people who are Jewish and people who are not or between people who are keeping the law and people who are not, or between people who regard, you know, so many examples jumping to mind here. But when Paul says something like this, all scripture is inspired. Like we all know this, right? He's referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and he's referring to Jewish texts, right? These are, what's changing with Paul is not, a religious conversion as we think of it, but a recognition of Jesus as the fulfillment of the faith he had misunderstood. 
And he recognizes, ah, this has always been what God was doing. So there's deep conversion, but it's a conversion that he thinks, and I, obviously I believe him, makes him faithful to Moses. So in the Gospel of John, which is, would be a whole other conversation, this is why in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I do not judge you. Moses judges you. Moses judges you. This is, what Jesus is doing is something Moses has already said. Think about how often in Jesus, or to jump to Luke, when Jesus has been raised from the dead, it's Easter Sunday, the two disciples, Emmaus disciples are headed home and Jesus shows up as a stranger on the road. And there's this you know, deep conflictedness in them. Obviously they're sad, Jesus asked them why they're downcast. And they said, have you not heard of Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, and we had hoped he would be Messiah. So they still believe he's a prophet, but no longer a Messiah. And what does Jesus say in response? You didn't really believe in me. No. How foolish and slow of heart you are to believe all that is written in the law and the prophets. If you're misjudging me, it's because you've misread these texts. And what does he do at that point? And starting with the beginning, he teaches them everything that is said about him in the scriptures. Right? So Paul, Luke, John, and we can go through all the texts. They're all making that exact same point. Jesus is the fulfillment of this life, not its negation. And the, the contest between Christians and Jews is about that. It's about that. Are, is Jesus this one or not? And of course... Jews are going to say, no, he isn't. And we Christians are going to say, yes, he is. But that's where the disagreement is. That's where the argument is. Not a faith that has replaced this one. Phil, do we want to do another question or should we just stop with that? Uh, let's, does, okay, does, you know, somebody's got a burning question over here, I think. And then, and then, then, uh, then I'll say our next step here. Yeah. Um, usually when I've heard um, discussions about supersessionism. Uh, I've been in conversation with people that really want to, you know, I attend, a, I don't attend All Souls, but I attend a predominantly uh, Gentile church. Yeah. So they're trying to bring in Jewish holidays and things like that. And so, no, mm. we shouldn't oh, do, yeah, yeah, we yeah, shouldn't yeah, do yeah. church calendar or yeah. things like that. So what does it look like for uh, kind of a consistency with uh, what you're proposing and your Christology of, of what that looks like for the church. Yeah, so there's a, there's a guy named Mark Kinzer, K-I-N-T-Z-E-R, who's like the, I, in my opinion, he's the leading Messianic Jewish theologian, right? So what you're talking about is a kind of Messianic Judaism, a Messianic Judaism or a Christianity that's kind of resourcing Messianic Judaism. And what, I'll just tell you what he says, right? And then I'll add my own comment. So what Kinsler says is for Gentile Christians to appropriate, and this is the word he uses, appropriate Jewish practices while rejecting the Jewish way of life as valid is wrong. That if you're going to have those practices, and he names things like blowing a shofar or wearing a prayer cloth, He's like, you either must genuinely believe that that is a God-given way of life that you honor fully, or it's not yours to do. 
Right? So if you believe that is the way of life to which God has called you, then live it. Don't appropriate it. Right? Don't take what you want, like the shofar or the prayer cloth or whatever. Now, I, I'm going to defer to him on that because he is the Jewish theologian who's also a Christian who's trying to make sense of that for his people and his, his tribe, so to speak. Um, I do think, as, as I hope the talk tonight is, is provoking all of you to think, I think these issues are much more difficult than we're used to thinking anything is. I think, again, I don't know most of you, and I certainly don't know your backgrounds, but many of us will have been raised in kinds of Christianity that are simplistic, and the more demanding the problem is, the more dismissive of its seriousness we've been. And this is as serious as anything can be, because it goes right to the heart of what our God is doing. Who is our God? What is he doing? How do these scriptures come to us? And I, I don't think there is a more difficult, complex, thorny issue than what it means for God to call these people and then to graft Gentiles into them and then not end history. So what all of the prophets anticipate, pretty much, all the prophets anticipate is in the end, the Gentiles are going to flood into Israel, right? That in the end, the nations are going to come, right? What nobody anticipates is that God's going to show up Throw open the floodgates. Welcome everybody into the temple. What does Jesus do? What gets him killed? You, this was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. Right? For all nations. By the way, this is what gets Paul arrested, and in, he ends up in Rome because of this as well. T Stephen gets killed because of it. So part of the reason early Christians die because of what they're teaching is not that they're claiming that Jesus is God. This is shocking. It's, it's hard to get our minds around, but the fact is there are all kinds of examples in Jewish tradition of belief that human beings could be raised up to divine status. It's not the claim that Jesus is God that's shocking. Right? It's the claim that Jesus is God, not the idea of incarnation, not the idea of a human being also being divine. What's shocking is that it's this guy. Right? That's the contest, not is this possible, but is this the one? This is why the argument is, wait a minute, the Messiah has to be from, he can't be from Galilee. It's got to be from the city of David. Can anything good come out of Galilee? Their question is not, is it possible for there to be a Messiah who's divine and human? Their question is, can this guy be? This is John the Baptist's question too, right? Are you the one or do we look for another? The problem is Jesus personally, not the idea of, an, of a savior in the flesh, right? Now, I think what you get from that is it, it should slow us down a little bit and, and make us pause and realize maybe we don't understand really what's going on here yet. And I, I certainly didn't. I, and I, I'm still way over my head. I mean, this, there's so much to read, so many voices to hear. And I think what is clear though, right from A to Z, is this, this God, the God of Abraham, has always been about the same thing. And that Jesus reveals him, is one with him, and brings, brings that to pass. And then ascends. And that's where all the trouble comes. Right? Because the, Jesus has come 
You remember the question in Acts 1, the disciples gather around Jesus and what do they say to him? Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're like, we don't know what happened with that death and resurrection business, but can we get back to whatever it was you were doing to set up the kingdom in Israel, right? Not, not the kingdom of Israel over against the nations, but the kingdom of Israel for the sake of the nations. And Jesus says, oh, you're going to be my witnesses about that kingdom. And then he leaves, right? And that means we're in this moment in which that kingdom has been inaugurated. It's been started, but it's not finished yet. And so now Jews and Christians are having this internal squabble, this family dispute about, wait a minute. We believe in the same, the God of Abraham. We believe in this one Adonai, but is Jesus faithful to him or not? And that's where the, where the rub is. I feel uh, like we're deeply honored to have a sneak peek of where your work is going thank and uh, deeply humbled to have you here. Can we honor Dr. Green tonight? Thank you, thank you.